Okay, here's where we're at. I'm going to do this pretty quickly by way of introduction um, because we've been going through this for months, so hopefully you guys can memorize this or recite this from memory. What's happened up until date in the book of Ezra is you have a group of people called the Jews that are living in a region called Babylon. It's a massive empire called Babylon. Uh, Seventy years or so prior to them being leaving Babylon, they were taken into captivity. God brought a judgment upon the people of Israel. He sort of exported them from their land, from their territory, uh, for several reasons. Partly to do doing with idolatry, partly doing with uh, disobedience, partly doing to the fact that for 490 years, nobody kept the Sabbath rest of the land. It's a long story I won't go into right this moment, but it was all part of kind of the accumulative judgment that God brought upon the people, takes them out of the land of Egypt, or out of the land of Canaan, sends them off in the land of Babylon, and now they've been in Babylon for 70 years. At the end of 70 years, God raises up a king by the name of Cyrus. Cyrus issues a decree, says, you guys can go back into their land, go back into your land, we'll even flip the bill for it. And this began basically a series of three returns from exile three returns from exile the first return was in verses or chapters one through six in the book of ezra it was under the leadership of a guy by the name of zerubbabel zerubbabel's main passion main longing main desire was to basically rebuild the temple that had been broken down 70 years earlier to restore the worship of the people of god uh several years later beginning at around chapter 7, uh, from chapter 7 all the way to the end of the book in Ezra, uh, sort of chronicles the second major um, return from exile under the leadership of a guy by the name of Ezra. He's the guy who wrote the book. Now, Ezra's return from exile is a little bit different, kind of similar to the first return from exile, but the second return from exile is more focused upon a desire to rebuild and restore the people, to make sure that the people are healthy, to make sure that the people that are living in Jerusalem are actually worshiping God, that they're staying on course, that they're walking strong with God. And the way that he's going to do that, we'll, we'll see in just a moment. The third major return from exile was under the leadership of a guy by the name of Nehemiah. That's in his book, Nehemiah. Maybe you've read the book, Nehemiah. That's essentially the third major return from exile under the leadership of Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah's job, or his passion, his uh, purpose or goal or reason for returning from Babylon back in the land of Canaan was specific, was that he wanted to basically rebuild the wall that had been broken down several, you know, about 100, 150 years earlier around the city. Uh, so he looked at it this way. He thought, you know, if you got a temple, and if you got people that are strong, who love God and that are worshiping God, but if you don't have any walls around your city, and you really don't have an army to protect the people that are living within the city. You can have strong people. You can have a great temple. You can have a lot of life inside the city. But you also have a lot of conflict. You've got uh, people coming in, people violating, people stealing, people uh, you know, destroying other things. Uh, the people are really not safe because they are open and susceptible to thieves and other tribes and stuff like that. So his desire was to rebuild the wall around the city of Jerusalem, which he did. 52 days, miracle. So that's where we're at. We're sort of somewhere in between during the second return from exile under the leadership of this guy named Ezra. So in chapter 8, which we started about two weeks ago, we kind of got into it at about two weeks ago, what we did is we sort of look at the second half 
of chapter 8, beginning around verse 21 to the last verse of the entire chapter. The reason, reason why we did that is uh, we kind of flipped it upside down. And so we'll take a look at the very first slide. We'll cover some of the uh, kind of the snapshots of what happened in that chapter. Verses 1 through 20, um, sort of in summary, the whole chapter really chronicles the story of, Nehem, or of Ezra's journey from Babylon back into the land of Jerusalem. What he's going to do is he's going to travel 900 miles across desert, across harsh terrain, uh, sort of confronting the elements. You can imagine how difficult that would be. You've got grandma and grandpa with you. You've got very young kids that are traveling with you. And you've got everything in between. And what's going to happen is he's going to march essentially 45,000 to 50,000 people across the desert for 900 miles from Babylon into Jerusalem because he's got a specific purpose to accomplish, which we'll look at in just a moment here. So really what we looked at in first was chapter 8 is about sort of this journey, that he's on journey. He's on this mission. He's on this mission to accomplish for God, to build up the people of God back in Jerusalem for the glory of God. That's what's happening. So verses 1 through 20 deal specifically with him dealing with people. We'll actually look at this passage, verses 1 through 20, this morning. Uh, two weeks ago, we picked up at around verse 21, and we looked at these. The other thing that happens in the chapter, he prays for dependence upon God. You remember, they didn't have an army when they traveled across the wilderness. You got 45,000 people crossing the wilderness uh, through kind of a midst of thugs, uh, all sorts of uh, Bedouin-type people that are hungry. Um, they depend upon the land and travelers, right? So it was very, very common for people to rape and to pillage you and to steal your goods. Very common. And when you are going to be marching 45,000 people across this wilderness, and some are weak, some are sick, some are old, some are young, and you don't have anybody with armor or very, very long spears, you're kind of like open prey with a big target that says, hit me. And that's kind of what happened. So what you see in about verse 21 to 23 is Ezra really prays. He fasts and he prays to God, asking for God's blessing. Uh, then we see in verse 24 to 34, we see him really being entrusted with lots of money, lots of goods. And we're talking, this isn't like, you know, uh, paper money. We're talking, this is like gold coin and silver coin. And imagine, all right, imagine like huge money sacks with like pounds and pounds of gold coins. That's what these guys are carrying, all right, across the desert amidst of all sorts of type of predators. And what happens is they're basically given this money by God to bring back to Jerusalem to continue worshiping God and building up the work there, making sure everybody's solid and strong and healthy. And yet, by God's providence, they make it back. And nothing's ever stolen. Nothing's lost. Everything's accounted for. Really, it's a miracle. Um, next, we see them rejoicing. We see sort of this in, in between the text. They're obviously happy because God's protecting them. Finally, we see in verses 35 to 36, they're worshiping God. The chapter ends or closes with them finally arriving to their destination. They start offering all these sacrifices to God, worshiping God because God has been good. He's protected them. He's kept his hand upon them. And this is basically their way of giving themselves back to God and saying, God, thank you. Thank you, God, for being good to us. That's what happens. 
Now, I want to basically begin going back to verse 1 and take a look at what's going on here. Now, I already mentioned what's happening here in chapter 8 is really this larger concept of journey. They are journey. They are on sort of this movement of God. Um, but we see it around verse 21, 22, somewhere around there. Uh, Ezra prays, and he's asking God to bless them on this journey. It's like, God, would you protect us while we're on this journey? Keep us safe. Have your hand upon us. Help us just to, uh, to, 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 to make this journey properly protected by you. And really, the actual Hebrew word that's used there is the Hebrew word derek, D-E-R-E-K. It's a word that appears all throughout the Bible, some 700 plus times. And really, you can put it this way, that the concept of direct or the concept of journey is a theme that's found all throughout the Bible. Here's some examples. Uh, when God calls Abraham, he calls this guy, he's just sort of an idol-worshipping pagan. He's living in the region called Babel or Babylon, or in an area called Ur the Chaldeans. And God calls uh, Abraham, and he says, Abraham, follow me. The word follow me literally means be on my path, follow me, uh, be part of my journey, is what God's really calling Abraham to. And what happens is Abraham leaves behind this old life that he had, and God promised him, he says, listen, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a land that's flowing with milk and honey. It's a great land. It's a great territory. The thing you've got to understand sort of in the context is Abraham doesn't have any snapshots. He doesn't have any pictures. There's no photos to download and look at. There's nobody he can call and email or ask, hey, what's Canaan like? Is the Mediterranean nice? What's the temp in the summer? You know, he had no idea, had no way of understanding or knowing at all what Canaan was like. All he had... All he had was the promise of God. God's word, it's a great land. God's word, I'm going to make you a big nation. God's word, I'll take care of you. So Abraham, here's the clue, Abraham, by faith, leaves his past life, by faith, follows God. Follows God in his path. We're told in the Bible that it was this action of Abraham. That was, it was accounted to him for righteousness. So what I want you to hear is sort of this concept. There's this theme that sort of emerges in the text. It goes something like this. God speaks. God says, don't go your way. Go my way. And the way people respond to God is oftentimes, or all the time really, is by faith. God doesn't always paint a full picture or synopsis as to how life will be what it will be like, what it will entail, God will just say, follow me. I'm a good God. I'm trustworthy. And what happens is you see sort of this example that follows people, and you'll even see further throughout the Bible, that the Bible would say something like this, especially about Abraham. Abraham was justified by faith, or he was declared righteous. In other words, there's a distinction that begins to be made in the Bible. It goes something like this. You have a distinction between the righteous people or those that are justified. It's just kind of another way of saying made right with God. And then you have those that are not made right with God. Okay, So you've got to get this. Those people that are made right with God are those people that hear God say, follow me. They leave behind their past life of following whatever it was that they were following before, and they follow after God, and that action or that step 
of following God is called faith. They don't have any actual tangible or visible evidence by which to follow other than the word of God. They follow it by faith and they're declared righteous. They're declared right with God. On the other hand, you've got people that the Bible distinguishes, those that don't follow the path of God. The Bible just terms those people as the way of the wicked. The way of the wicked is those who walk in a path of their own making, their own doing. So you've got sort of this distinction. Righteous, who follow God, and wicked, who don't follow God. What God does is he basically calls the unrighteous or the wicked and says, listen, change your path. My path is better, I promise. And what happens is throughout the Bible, you see glimpses or snapshots throughout the whole Bible of people doing that. Abraham's the first example. That's why he's called the father of the faithful. You know, right? Call, call him Father Abraham. Because everybody who is faithfully or by faith follows God is basically following in sort of the same spiritual DNA as Abraham. You see another example of like Moses, right? Moses is raised, trained in the ways of Egypt uh, through a series of circumstances, ends up killing somebody. Now he's an outcast. He has to run. He's, uh, he's kind of hunted, right? He's uh, wanted by Egyptian guard. And now he's off in the wilderness somewhere watching sheep. And one day while he's watching sheep, uh, he all of a sudden stumbles across this bush that's on fire and it's talking. And uh, word of advice, if you ever stumble across a talking bush that's on fire, it's probably good to listen to it. It's what Moses did. Listen to this bush, and the bush happened to say, Moses, go back to Egypt, be deliverer. Tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Now, Moses, that was kind of a tricky move for Moses, because remember, Moses was a refugee. He was sort of in his own exile, because he had sinned, he had killed somebody, he was a wanted man. But he obeys God. So he goes back to this huge group of people, says, listen, I know you guys don't know me. Uh, however, God sent me to tell you to follow me. And if you follow me, uh, we'll go to Canaan. All right, what's Canaan? Uh, Canaan's a great place to live. Uh, we'll go through the wilderness and we'll get to the land flowing with milk and honey. So what happens is the people follow God. Or they follow Moses, who is obviously following God. You see the same story over and over and over again. Here's an example of one of the prophets, a guy by the name of Isaiah. He writes, and he's essentially writing now not to just an individual person, but an entire nation. A nation that is called by God's name. This is a nation called the people of Israel. And as a nation, the people were to follow God. But there were times in their history where they obviously did not follow God. They sort of backslid into idolatry. They didn't worship God. They didn't follow God the way they should have. Um, they, in essence, followed their own path, not the path of God. And so the job of the prophets was basically to speak to the people, to exhort them to return back to the path of God. Here's an example of what the prophet Isaiah said. He says this, that these are a rebellious people in Isaiah 30. He says they lie. They're unwilling to hear the instruction of God. He says they leave the way. They leave the way, not lead the way. They leave the way. In other words, they see the path that's in front of them. Rather than staying on the path, they walk off the path. And so the job of the prophet is to say, you guys, you left the way again. You left the way again. And God is a God who promises life, but you've got to have life on the path that God's promising. If you walk off the path, 
You don't have life. If you walk off the path, you will die. There are consequences. There's sinful consequences. You may end up even hurting yourself. You will no doubt end up probably hurting other people. And you will for sure end up hurting the relationship between you and God. To be with God is to walk in the path of light and life. To not be with God, to follow or fall away from God or to push God away from you is to push literally away from you light and life. The opposite of light and life is what? Death and darkness, right? So these are metaphors that are all throughout the Bible. But it's this concept that Jesus is wanting for us to be on journey following him into light and life. The prophet's job was to say, guys, stop. Stop being dumb. Stop walking up the path. Change your ways. Open your eyes. Realize that the path that you're on will destroy you. I'm calling you back. That's what the prophet would do. So what he would say, for example, here's another one. He would say, um, as God's calling you back to his path, he says, listen, for God goes on to say, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are actually higher or better or greater or more full of life than your ways. And my thoughts are more stronger than your thoughts, are more than your thoughts. I love that passage because it's basically this picture of God getting on his knees to a little rebellious four-year-old, five-year-old boy and saying, Listen, son, I know that you think running around in the mud with no shoes on, riding your bicycle with no helmet on, and eating paint chips is probably a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. It might feel good for the moment. They might taste a little sweet, but the reality is you eat too many of those things, your life's not going to go too good. But because I love you, son, I'm telling you, don't jump on the bed. Don't ride your bike without a helmet. Stop eating little chips that are sort of accumulating at the bottom of the window. And just hang out with me. Just spend time with me. Let's go fishing together. Let's hang out with one another. That's life. Now, isn't that better than eat paint chips, son? Yeah, dad. You know what I'm saying? That's the picture. That's the picture that God is saying, follow me. My ways are better than your ways. But you just don't see it. It's not, God's not boasting in an arrogant boast. Man, whenever a father sits down with a child who's rebellious and says, listen, I know better than you, he's hopefully not being arrogant. He's hopefully just communicating truth in a very humble fashion that's just real. I've been on that path before, son. I know what it's like to be rebellious. I know what it's like to, you know, ride my bike without a helmet on and crash. See this scar right here? That's what happened, kid. When I was five years old, that's just, I did the same thing as you. It's painful. It hurts. I don't want that to happen to you. That's kind of what God's saying here. So the whole goal that I want you to see is this concept of journey is all throughout the Bible. Jesus himself was on journey. Jesus comes into this world on journey. He's on a mission. Jesus actually sort of embodies this concept of mission. He takes this concept or this Old Testament word, direct or way, and he actually personalizes it. Here's what he does. He speaks to his disciples. He says, listen, you guys, you want to know how to get to the Father? You want to know how to get to life and to have light in your life? You got to walk the path. The path is me because I am the way. I am the truth 
and I am the life. That's Jesus' way. In other words, he's saying, I'm the journey. I'm the journey. You want to know how to have life? You want to know how to have light in those dark areas of your life? You want to know how to have a life that's not shattered and broken and always feeling as if something's not right or there's a misfire or your life is sort of like this constant, ongoing, broken rhythm? It's to walk after me. I'll reconnect you with the Father. It's Jesus' old words. And what he's doing as he begins his ministry, he calls people to follow him. That's what Jesus' whole life was. He says, follow me. Follow me. One of the most beautiful pictures of this is when Jesus begins his ministry, he walks up to this guy by the name of Matthew. All right? His Hebrew name is Levi. He's probably because he was part of the lineage of the great Levi, uh, Moses' brother who started the Levitical priesthood. So where's Levi? Where's Matthew? He's working as a tax collector, all right? Now, I don't need to go into some great expositional truth to point out that tax collectors today have about the same bit of connotation as tax collectors did back then. Everybody hates them, all right? Did you guys all pay your taxes this week? Y'all good? Thanks for that enthusiastic response. So my point that I'm trying to make is this, is that what happens is, is, is Matthew, here's a guy, he's not working in the temple, he's not lighting candles, he's not walking as a, as a priest, he's not doing priestly duties. Why? He's a flunky. He failed. And what's he doing? He's working for the enemy. He's working for the very government that every Jew hated. He's literally sort of like this, you know, traitor. And he's literally sitting at the side of the road asking every one of his kinsmen, brothers and sisters in Abraham, I need you to pay your taxes. Aren't you a Jew? Yeah, but i got to pay the bills. You're an idiot. Spit in your face. That's the type of guy Matthew was. One day Jesus comes along and says, Matthew, follow me. Like, "Uh, Jesus, I'm a flunky. You don't want me. I'm from a great family lineage. I've defamed my father's name. I've not walked in the ways of my father. I've, I've just brought shame upon everything that's sacred and holy. I'm literally living in rebellion against everything sacred and Jewish. All right? You don't want me. Jesus is like, ah, follow me. Follow me. These are the type of people that Jesus picked to say, we're going to go on a journey together. And our goal is to tell people about how great God is. Try to bring people into this light and the life of the Father. So here's what Ezra does. Ezra's goal, really, is to just go from Babylon into Israel for the purpose of bringing the name of God, to building up the people there. We've been saying this all along. There's a church that is in Jerusalem. What I mean by church is I mean a collection or a gathering of people who love God. They're in Jerusalem. Ezra wants to go back, build up the church, and he's going to be leading the second missionary journey from Babylon into the city of Jerusalem to build up the church. And this is the story. So verses 1 through 20 are basically going to give us sort of the genealogy or the chronology of this. And I know most of you probably woke up this morning and just thought, you know, I really, really hope Pastor Brian teaches on a genealogy. Because you just love names. 
Because I love you guys, I thought I'd just bless you with that today. So we're going to read every single name in this. This is one of those passages that most people read, they skip over, they're like, names. I hate reading names, all right? They're hard to pronounce, I know. The trick is to just say them very fast and confidently, which hopefully I'll do. And, uh, but the point is, is what I want you to see as we read through this list of names is every single one of these people, these are heroes. These are heroes. These are people, okay? I would even go so far as to say they're probably people that are in heaven. So it'd be a real bummer if one day you get to heaven and you meet these guys and they're like, did you read my name? I was in the Bible. And you're like, skipped it. <laughs> it was boring. I didn't know you, so I just skipped it. Your name is weird. It's not like Mike. All right? So I just skipped it. All right? So we're going to read every name, and uh, we're going to try to learn some lessons along the way. So here's what we're going to do. Just jump right into it and uh, tackle it head on. First one says this. These are the heads of the Father's house, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia at the reign of Artaxerxes the king. The sons of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom. Gershom literally means foreigner. Of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel, which means God is my judge. And of the sons of David, Hattush. Uh, his name literally means assemble. But what I want you to notice first, because you might not have picked up on it, every one of these names, even though they might sort of be archaic or foreign or distant or just random, they're very significant. I'll tell you why. If you look at the name uh, Gershom, and Daniel, or actually their fathers, who were Phinehas and Ithamar, both of those guys, Phinehas and Ithamar, were actually the sons of Aaron. Aaron. Aaron was the father of the priesthood. All right? You call it the Aaronic priesthood. Aaron was the brother of, does anybody know? Moses. So these guys, Ithamar and Phinehas, their sons, Gershom and Daniel, these guys are basically in the training to be the priesthood. All right. The third guy, uh, David, um, as no David is obviously great King David. If you ever been to Israel, everything's named David, right? Like King David liquor store, right? I mean, everything is named King David. Everywhere you go, there's everybody reveres David. Why? Because he was sort of the picture of the greatest king that Israel has ever had. Uh, he's sort of the emblem of the most powerful monarchy that Israel has ever had. And he also stands for the greatest hope that Israel has. Because it was through the lineage of David that God promised to one day bring the Messiah. So every good Jew believes that one day the Mashiach or the Messiah will come through the line of David. And so when you come to the New Testament, you begin to read a little bit of the background about Jesus. You begin to realize Jesus actually came from the lineage of David. So here's what I want to point out that I think might be happening here. Ezra is literally developing the dream team to go back from Babylon into Israel. He's got the two most highest ranking men that are going to be probably taking the role of being priest. And he's got the highest ranking guy to be king. So here's what you have. Ezra probably is thinking we are going to do something so great. We are going to reestablish a strong priesthood and we are going to establish or reestablish the monarchy i think because he's a good jew he's probably thinking through that the mashiach will come 
So here's what I want you to see. Ezra is going back to Canaan with two massive hopes in his mind. Here's what they are. We could be a part of the biggest movement in all of history to bring in the great priesthood and to bring in the great king. Literally, the Messiah. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say he's saying we, the Messiah, Jesus, is what we're all about. We're going back to Israel because we are about Jesus. Here's the beauty. All right, here's what happens in Jesus' life. Jesus literally fulfills these two massive streams of Hebrew thought. Jesus literally becomes the great high priest. Hebrews is all about that. Jesus also fulfills all the prophecies of being in the lineage of David. So not only is Jesus priest, but he's also king. So Ezra comes back in the city with this great hope saying, our whole mission, our whole journey, everything that we are about, everything that we are setting our hands to, everything that we are about to do has Jesus at the center of it all. Guys, that's what church is supposed to be about. This is Jesus. And that's, that's, I love this, because this is like several hundred years before Christ ever even came, and God takes these great guys like Ezra, who knew the Scripture, who loved God, who represented a bunch of people who loved God, and says, he's going to work for me. His goal is to bring about Messiah, or to bring about the basics of bringing about the Messiah. So that's what happens. The next thing we go on to see, in verse 3, it says this, and of the sons of Shechaniah, the word Shechaniah literally means uh, one who dwells with God, Shekan, uh, is the first Hebrew word, which means to kind of like a, a pitch a tent, kind of uh, to drill stakes into a ground and to stretch out a canopy or a leather or a tent or a canvas out. It's this idea of dwelling, kind of hanging out for a little bit. So I kind of put it this way, Shekinah, the word Ah or Jehovah or El, you'll see that name appear periodically. All of those are, are names of God, are varying names of God. So you take the word Shekinah, it literally means one who dwells with God, one who hangs out with God. That's kind of the name, that's what it literally means. Um, you go on to see about verse 4, it says, In the sons of uh, Pahath, Moab, uh, Elihuina, uh, it says one who looks to God, is kind of what that means. Uh, the son of Zeruiah, of him, 200 men. The sons of Zatu, and his name is Shechaniah also. Uh, he's the, uh, the son of Jehaziel, and with him 300 men. Uh, with him, uh, the sons of Adin. Um, his name is Ebed. He's the son of Adin. Um, the word Ebed literally means servant. And it says he's the son of Je- Jonathan, and with him 50 men. Um, verse 7, uh, what you'll see though again is we see all these names. Every one of these names really have significance. You know, kind of in our modern day and age, we have names. We, you've got kids. They oftentimes choose names for some reason. I mean, every, most kids that you, you meet, if you ask Joe Priel, why'd you name your kid Kai? I'm sure he's got some story behind it, some reason for it. When, when, when people name their children, we usually have some sort of a reason for it. Like, I named my first daughter Brianna. Brianna. It's got my name in it, you know? Brian. And I was like, oh, it's a feminine form of my name. That's kind of cool. Maybe a little arrogant, but it's kind of cool. I like the name, you know? And, and, you know, my next daughter named Brooke, and, 
And, you know, we, we, we looked up the names and what they meant and what they signified. And when we today name kids, we oftentimes think of sort of the significance of it. So most people name a kid something based upon either a uh, circumstance, maybe around their uh, birth or a name, which sort of has some sort of significant meaning or somebody in the family uh, or maybe, you know, representing the name where the child is conceived. So you meet a kid's name is like Las Vegas, you know. The whole idea is that names have meaning. Names have meaning, um, especially so in the Old Testament times. People had a lot of vested interest into the names. So every name you're going to read really is somebody's child that had a lot of energy, a lot of thought, maybe even a lot of prayer, tears, pain that had gone into the name in which they had given to these kids. So verse 7, it goes on and says this, of the sons of Elam, uh, Jehashiah, or Jehiah, uh, I'm sorry, Jeshiah. Um, the name literally means Jehovah has saved. Uh, there's a sort of a derivative of that name or ways in which you can change that name a little bit. Like Jeshua or Yeshua or Joshua or the Greek phrase or Greek word is Jesus. Literally means Jehovah saved or God saved. Beautiful name. So Yeshua, Yeshua. Um, we go on about verse 8. It says this, of the sons of Steph. Uh, Stephatiah, uh, his son's name is Zebediah. The name Zebediah literally means God has given, the son of Michael, and with him 80 men. Of his sons, Obadiah, servant of Joab, or servant of jo- uh, Jehovah, the word Obed, remember we look at this, the word Obed means servant. With the addition of the name Ayah, you have Obadiah, you've got servant of God. I serve God, basically is the name Obadiah, literally what it means. Uh, the son of Jehiel, with him uh, 218 men. Uh, the sons of Bani, Shalomith. Uh, one of the important words that are sort of tucked in that name, Shalom. What does Shalom mean? It means peace. Uh, so this guy's name literally means peaceful. Uh, we go on verse 11. The sons of Bibai, uh, Zechariah. The word Zechar literally means remember or God remembers Zechariah. God remembers. So maybe there's some sort of a circumstance around the birth. Where maybe the lady couldn't conceive, prayed to God for a long time, no answers to prayer. And all of a sudden one day God answers and she says, I'm going to name my child. God remembers. So Zechariah, um, the son of Bebi, of him 28 men. Uh, verse 12, the sons of Azgad, Johanan. Um, the word Hanan, Hanan, also comes from another sort of Hebrew derivative. Uh, the Hebrew word Hased is very similar to the word Hanan. Uh, the word chesed means like favor. Uh, some translations would actually translate it grace. So Jehanan literally means God is my grace. The English word, John. God, is, God gives grace. That was the name, Jehanan. Um, we go on from there in about verse 13. This is the son of Adokim, uh, whose came later. The name's being Elia, uh, Eliphelet. Um, means God is deliver. Jeul means uh, to sweep away or God sweeps away. Uh, Shema'iah uh, means God listens. And of the sons of Bigvi, Uthiah, which means helpful, and Zakor, um, which means given. And then it says uh, of them there were 70 men. So what I want you to notice sort of as a theme in the majority of these names is the name El or Ayah or Ia or Yeshua. Yeshua, right? All sorts of different names for God. 
It's amazing to me. When you read through a list like that, one of the things that you begin to learn, even just from people from an ancient, distant culture, what do they care about? I mean, if we were to sort of be people who analyze an ancient culture, what would we learn about the culture from 2,500 years ago of this group of people just by reading their names? What's very important to this ancient culture? God. Center of everything, isn't he? Every single name for the most part, has some sort of reference to God in it. Right? It's amazing. This was a group of people led by Ezra saying, we are going to bring about or see the Messiah come, and we are people that are focused and censored with God at the very core of everything that we do. That's who these people were. These guys were heroes. These were people that says, we are going to journey and follow God. The last few verses says this in verse 15. I gathered them at the river that runs to Ahava. Most scholars have no clue where Ahava is at. And they were camped there for three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. And I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elethan, Jerib, El Nathan. El Nathan. He's the Latino version of Nathan. El Nathan. El Nathan. Zechariah. Sorry. Um, Mashulam, these were leading men, and Joireb, and El Nathan, and who were men of insight. So these guys had great insight, they were learning, they were knowledgeable. Verse 17, and I sent to them Edo, the leading men of the place of Kasaphia, the house of God. Verse 18, and by the good hand of the God that was on us, they brought us the men of discretion, and of the sons of Mahali, he's from the islands, the son of Levi. Son of Israel, namely Sherebiah, the sons of kinsmen. Verse uh, 18, it says also, 19, also of Hashabiah, of him, the son of Jeshiah, sons of Meraiah, and his kinsmen and his sons, 20 besides, 220 the temple servants whom David and the officials had set apart to attend the Levites. These were all mentioned by name. So what you see right here, sort of in summary, is this large group of people that are very sort of disconnected from us. We don't really think about the names that much. But what I want you to think about is this is a large group of people that are about to embark upon a journey that will literally change the course of history, bringing about all these hopes leading to the reality or the fruition of the Messiah. That's who these people are. They journey, they leave everything behind in Babylon, they travel 900 miles across desert on foot. It takes them four months to get there. Probably many die. Many women probably gave birth. This is this group of people. They finally make it to the city, and God continues. God begins to do his work. That's what's happening here. That's what's taking place. The text is there to sort of commemorate these people. And in many ways, this is exactly what you see continue on in the New Testament. In many ways... Ezra is just simply reflecting the heart of God. God is a God who is on mission. God is a God who is on journey. God is a God who has come into our world, who has seen us on paths that are dangerous. God has watched us walk on path, the way the Bible would put it. It says, all we like sheep, we've gone astray. And yet the heart of the good shepherd, God, has sent his son into this world to not only feel our pain, but to bear the weight of our sin, to feel the weight of our offense for the distinct purpose of redirecting us on the path that we are currently on or once used to follow that led to destruction to turn us around to get onto the path that leads to light and life. And here's what God does. 
He calls other people to join him. He calls people before Jesus, like Ezra, like Nehemiah, Moses, Abraham, through the prophets, to speak forth, to call people to change, to repent. Today in the church, this is what Calvary Slow is about. This is what we really are about at the very core of who we are, is we are to be a group of people that are trying to redirect people's lives from walking down the dead end of your own life that leads to death, darkness, and destruction. To see a change. Not because we're trying to control people. Not because we have some sort of authoritarian rule that we just want to push forward. Not because Christians are necessarily pushy. Some are. And that's a bummer. But really at the heart of it, we just want to see people have life. And the life that God gives is life that comes through Jesus. When we turn away from our sin, when we turn away from the path that we've walked on, and we begin to walk on the path that leads to life and light through Jesus, that's the message. That's why we preach Christ and Him crucified and risen again from the dead. Because God so loved you that He sent His Son to die for you. So that you would not suffer, that you would not perish, but that you would have everlasting life. That's what God is doing. That's what the type of church we want to be about. We're moving. We are constantly moving. Things are changing. People are coming in here. They live here for short periods of time and they move on. We've seen people come and go. And I think if I were to take a survey, ask people, how long have you been here? Probably a very small few of you have been here for longer than 10 years. You know that next week, next week will mark 15 years we've been a church. It's the birthday next week. 15 years. That's amazing. We started 15 years ago next week. It's amazing. We're not doing anything special next week because I'm getting ready for a trip. I'm going to Costa Rica on the following Monday. I'm very excited about that. But... probably towards the end of May, I think we're going to do just a big party. Like after church, maybe on a Sunday, maybe around 4.30 or so, we'll go to the new building that God just brought us into. We'll do a big Mexican potluck. Why? Because I love Mexican food. I really like hot salsa. I really love guacamole. And so we're going to have a great time. So I just envision having a great time where we can celebrate, have a party, enjoy all the great things that God has done for us, in us, through us as a church. But really what we're talking about is we want to recognize that we are on mission. Not because we just have this desire to constantly, constantly be moving. But because Jesus is on mission. Because Jesus wants to seek and save the lost. Because Jesus realizes there's a world out there that doesn't know him yet. And that even though going for 15 years as a church... Even though we might have a very small handful of people that have been here for longer than 10 years or so, what we've seen sort of traditionally here is we've seen almost every four to five, six years, almost 60% of this entire church be brand new. Here's why. A lot of people are students. A lot of those students end up staying maybe and they get married. They live here for a year to two years. They realize San Luis is way too expensive. They can't live here. They got to move. So they end up moving out. So whether it's a student or whether it's even uh, young couples that try trying to raise a family and live here, it's very difficult. 
And so what happens is we do have this kind of movement happening all the time. I was talking to a friend of mine. He actually used to go to church here a while ago, and now he's actually a youth pastor at a church up in, the, in, up in uh, San, um, Santa Cruz. And as I was talking with him, he says, you know, Brian, you've always kind of talked about San Luis being sort of like this uh, revolving door. He corrected me. He says, Brian, I think it's a wrong metaphor. Don't think of it like a revolving door. Think of it like a launching pad. That's a good point. It's like a launching pad. People come here, they're here for a little bit, and then they learn about Jesus. Maybe some of them change the course of their life from walking out their death and darkness. And now they are positioned to walk after God, and they launch out from here to go forth into this world to make a difference, to tell other people about how good God is, to tell other people about the gospel. That's what this is about. We, we love being able to be a part of here. What I want to do now is I want to finish, and, and, and I, I want to actually read. A couple weeks ago, I had written on my blog and on my little Facebook profile. I just kind of asked people, I said, you know, we got kind of a 15-year anniversary coming up. If you got a little story that maybe you want to share about, you know, maybe if you lived here before or you still live here and you want to share a little bit about what God's done in your life, you know, how this church has maybe impacted you, I'd love to hear about it. I want to read you a few stories that were given to me. I got a lot of responses back. And uh, I was really, really blessed and really floored by a lot of them. Um, I just had way too many. So I'm only going to read a couple of them. I edited them a little bit so they can be a little bit more readable. Uh, I want to read a couple of these to you. I just want you to hear that this theme of being on journey, of moving, of going some direction, our goal is to just make sure that you are on the same path that Jesus is. That doesn't mean that every one of you are going to go out and be a missionary. All right? It doesn't mean that every one of you are going to pick up a Bible and start teaching it. But it does mean that if you are going to end up becoming a dad and you've got five kids, that you take that seriously and you be on the same page with Jesus with your kids and you raise your kids the way Jesus would raise them. That you would love those kids and you'd share and plant the gospel into their lives. That should God set you on a trajectory where your path is going to lead, you're going to get married. You're going to end up starting a business. That you would do it in such a way that you recognize you are on journey with God. You are on mission with God. I want to read you a couple of these things and we'll kind of wrap it up a little bit here. But here's a couple of the ones that came that were really encouraging. Just over 15 years ago, my husband and I were newly married with a baby on the way. We were both, quote unquote, saved, but we had no clue how to make Jesus the Lord of our lives. My mother had been praying specifically that we would meet a young couple our age who are Christians to help us figure out how to do just that. And then Brian and Sherry moved to Slow. They started a Bible study in their home. We went, we ate spaghetti, and we heard the word of God and preached the way, preached in a way that amazed and inspired us. Uh, my wife made good spaghetti, too. Uh, they befriended us, modeled the godly marriage, encouraged us, discipled us. We got to be a part of the early beginnings of a church that has changed many people's lives. Now fast forward 15 years. Calvary Slow has doubled, tripled, quadrupled. Countless people have been taught, convicted, exhorted. The Word of God has gone forward in a powerful way. Well, for us, we've moved to New Zealand six years ago. Four years ago, we planted a church in Rotorua, which is the spiritual and cultural home of the Maori. Uh, Rotorua can be a dark place with rampant alcohol and drug abuse, gambling, legalized prostitution, and a high rate of child abuse and suicide. 
Our church is predominantly Maori, about 80%. And most of them have come out of this kind of lifestyle. We've been amazed, though we shouldn't be, how the Word of God has radically affected their lives. But most exciting thing for us is seeing how they are beginning to disciple their own friends and their own family members who have also noticed changes in their lives and they want to know more about this Jesus guy. Because we are such... Because we had such an awesome foundation, we've been able to pass on what it means to go into all the world and to make disciples. That was written by a gal named Jabron. Next one says this. She she says, uh, I started coming to Calvary Slow about a year and a half ago. I was a freshman. I came because I had a ride. I love that. It's like, ah, someone gave me a ride. Um, Back home, quote unquote, church was something our family did. I grew up in a church, but I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it was about to have a relationship with God. I came to Calvary, and for the very first time I heard the gospel. Like I actually heard it past my head and into my heart. I heard the gospel every time I came. Something resonated on that note, and I haven't stopped hearing it. When I got, when I got here, the church was going through the book of John. And I can remember the very first sermon that I ever heard. It was on John 1. Pastor Brian was talking about how John used hypertext to draw you back into the Bible. John 1, verses uh, 4 through 5 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Honestly, I didn't understand what the verse meant. But then Pastor Brian went on to say that Jesus is the source of life, and that the darkness has not understood it, overcome or comprehended this light, That in fact, at the end of the book of John, Jesus overcomes death and darkness. I wanted to know this light. There is something captivating about it. And I knew it could, and I I knew I could see just fine with my eyes, but I couldn't really see. Like, how I could go to church my whole life and somehow not ever have understood what it was about. I was pretty blind, living in darkness and sin. And then the Lord broke some major change in my life last year. He freed me from addictions. He gave me a passion for his holy name, and he is still working in me. His pursuit is relentless. I love that. Now I know him as my shepherd and my savior. Jesus is Lord. Love that. Melinda. Next one is, uh, says this. In the summer of 1998, that was what, 11 years ago? Summer of 1998, Jesus brought me down to slow to save me. Love the way this started. He just got it right. He's just like, look, I, I thought it was just taking my only option. I thought Cal Poly was it. I love this because some of you, some of you came to Cal Poly because you're like, ah, it's my only option, right? Maybe the reason why you're here is because God sovereignly, lovingly, mercifully wanted to save you. That's what this guy wrote. He wrote, summer of 1998, Jesus brought me down to slow to save me. I thought it was simply... I thought I was simply moving to a cool town to do some rock climbing, finish college, play water polo instead. I was brought from death to life, and then I was called into pastoral ministry. As an unsaved 21-year-old, I set foot in Calvary Slow for the fall, in the fall of 1998 when we used to meet at the old Seventh-day Adventist building. I had long hair down on my shoulders, and Brian was a young whippersnapper of about 28. The moment I entered the doors, the Holy Spirit met me in a powerful way as all my worldly, or as my worldly and wrong preconceived notions of quote-unquote church were shattered, and I was introduced to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
I sat in the seats for the better part of a year, eating up the word of God. Right before summer break, Brian asked people to get involved, to help out, and that for me, that was it. I had the privilege and the opportunity to be part of this church thing. Little did I know that God had bigger plans. I soon got involved with youth ministry. I helped out in any way that I could on Sunday mornings alongside uh, one of the leaders in the church. And throughout this week, uh, throughout the week, I was living in a house on Tassajara Drive with a bunch of non-Christian friends and all graduated, uh, who had all graduated. And I was able to invite a few brothers to move in. And he puts in parentheses, thus the beginning of the infamous legacy of the Tassajara house. <laughs> Any Tassajara house people here? Anybody know about this? Raise your hand. Every Tassajara house, everybody's been to Tassajara house. Raise your hand. Uh-huh. There's a handful of you. All right. I've sat on that disgusting floor. Um, <laughs> God was moving in a powerful way in my life to the people and the ministry of Calvary Slow, and I was gaining some serious spiritual stretch marks. In February of 2001, I started a college ministry at Calvary Slow called Freedom. And for the first time, I had the opportunity to preach the Word of God, and I found the purpose of my life. I met my beautiful wife, Rachel, in December 2002, while practicing for a Christmas play the church was doing. She was Mary, and I was tree number one. <laughs> we, we did a Christmas presentation here, actually here, and we did it um, according to the story. You guys, you know, the Tale of Three Trees? Have you seen that? Tale of Three Trees? I think is what it's called. And... Uh, yeah, he was tree number one. And I used to joke, and I'm like, dude, you were pining for Rachel. Um, he said, uh, <laughs> he says, we married in 2004, and shortly after we got back from our honeymoon, I stepped back into the college ministry. All along the way, I had a deep desire to learn Greek and Hebrew and to delve deeper into the Bible. So I stepped out of my pastoral duties at Calvary Slow, and my wife and I moved to Portland, Oregon in December 2005 so that I could attend Western Seminary. Since that time... I've become the preaching pastor at a church called Eden Bible Church here in Portland, Oregon, which is a church born out of a ministry that was called Skate Church. Maybe some of you have heard of Skate Church. Big church, uh, big outreach, big ministry. Well, uh, Dave is now pastoring them. He says, I'm continuing very slowly uh, with my studies, and now I have added a beautiful little girl named Pearl to our family who has lovely eyes, just like her mom. To be honest with you, we deeply miss our dear friends at home at Calvary Slow. Seven years was not enough time together. We feel more like missionaries in a foreign land up here than anything else. Would that God would provide and call us home. Until then, we love and we miss all of you. God bless you, Calvary Slum. Last one is this. In fact, I'm going to have Mikey come on up. He's going to get ready to lead us in some worship as we finish up here. Last one is this. Hey, Brian. Hey, Brian. He says, I became a believer at Calvary Slough. I came to Cal Poly as a non-believer. My grandpa was a big influence in my life. He was an atheist. And I came from a family with a non-religious background. I never even thought about God for the first 18 years of my life. Four years ago, I became a Christian. And now in that time, I haven't stopped thinking about him. I was sent out from Calvary Slough not too long ago to go to Mexico City, Mexico, where we are now trying to do a church plant in Guadalajara. Mexico to reach out to college students and street kids in a city of 8 million people. I studied at Cal Poly from 2004 to 2008. In my dorm building, my brother, Darren, uh, who had become a Christian about four months earlier, so he was a real strong, stalwart believer in the faith, 
uh, obviously before he started hanging out with his brother. Four months old in the Lord. Strong, mature believer. Uh, earlier came some friends talking with me about Jesus. I always thought I was a classic, quote-unquote, good person and, ha- and was fine with God. But I failed to understand that we have all fallen short of God's glory and we have all worshipped and given our affections to the creation rather than the creator. We have all rebelled against God in our hearts. I always explained how God entered the world through Jesus and lived a life without sin. But on the cross, all my sin went to him and his perfection came to me, what history calls the great exchange. I have new life and eternal life through Jesus. James Ray discipled me and took me through the Bible early in my walk. It was powerful. God has given me new desires and a new heart. Today, I'm trying to plant a church in Guadalajara, Mexico with my brother Darren and a team of Mexicans and Americans. We are trying to reach college students at, a various, at the various universities in the city and street kids. Today, I went to a juvenile hall at a maximum security prison in Guadalajara, Mexico. I got to talk with about tw- for about 20 minutes in Spanish about God's love and sending Jesus to the cross, paying the price for our sins and giving us his perfection. Now in Guadalajara, we go out to college campuses, we make friends with street kids, drug addicts in the downtown area, and we go to some juvenile halls to preach the gospel. We play basketball and soccer with them. God is so good, Justin. This is just a handful of stories. A lot of them were just, they weren't people that went off, started churches. They were just people that, one of them was a gal, um, she went to Cal Poly here. She ended up getting married, and now she's living up somewhere in the Bay Area. And she's just she's plugged in at her church. She loves Jesus. She's probably about late 20s, maybe like 28 or so. And uh, just God's doing great things. And what, guys, the bottom line is this. Real simple bottom line is this, is what path are you on? It's just that simple. What path are you on? If you're on a path, that you have never made that distinction of realizing this leads to death and leads to darkness, and to discover the path of light, then you are on the path of darkness. And the way that you get off of that path of darkness and destruction is you repent from your sins. You confess your sins to God. Basically what you do is you join Jesus in this journey. This journey that Jesus himself walked. This journey that Jesus himself actually Finished. That's why the writer of Hebrews says he's the author and the finisher of the faith. That's who we follow. That's why I urge you to follow. Let's pray. We love Jesus. We're going to worship him. We're going to give our tithes and our offerings to him. If you're one of our guests, keep your money. Trust Jesus. All right? We're going to sing to him, and uh, we'll wrap it up. We'll pray. We'll dismiss you guys. Jesus, thank you for the cross. We give to you our worship now. We just devote ourselves to you. Take our tithes and our offerings as gifts of love and sacrifice, thanksgiving to you. God, we want to just be faithful with everything that we have. Lord, we have got an amazing journey ahead of us. We want to be faithful with everything that's been given to us. People's lives, we realize this journey involves people, broken people, hurting people. People that are called, that were enemies, to follow Jesus to make a difference. Make a difference in our lives. Help us to make a difference in other people's.